I went out walking through streets paved with gold Lifted some stones, saw the skin and bones of a city without a soul I stopped outside a church house where the citizens like to sit They say they want the kingdom, but they don't want God in it Yeah, I went with nothing, nothing but the thought of you I went wandering Live from the Mecca of Mormonism, Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Heart of the Matter, where Mormonism meets Biblical Christianity face-to-face, and I'm your host, Sean McCraney. If you have family or friends who can't watch Heart of the Matter on television, have them go to www.hotm.tv, and they can watch Heart of the Matter uh, live from anywhere in the world through streaming video. Also, all of our programs are archived there, so they can do that as well. Every Sunday afternoon from 1 to 2 p.m. a.m. 820, The Truth here in the Salt Lake Valley replays Heart of the Matter, so check it out. Then join us for a verse-by-verse, never-denominational Bible study. Everybody's welcome at the University of Utah from 2.30 to 3.30, and then after the study, we host a gathering of a group known as You Are Not Alone. It's for those coming out of Mormonism and looking to meet others who are experiencing the same trials and have gone ahead of them. Uh, Everyone is welcome there as well. Check us out at our brand new website, www.calvarycampus.com for more information. Girl, a film about premarital sex produced by Aletheia Ministries is available at the Calvary Chapel Bookstore in Salt Lake City and on our website at hotm.tv. It serves as a great tool to open up discussion with our youth about this age-old but highly important topic. Coming soon, boy. Looking for a great auto mechanic a Christian auto mechanic, affordable automotive, affordable automotive, affordable automotive. He's a Christian mechanic who does honest work with reasonable rates. So check him out. That's my own commercial for affordable automotive. Uh, and uh, we do things from the heart around here. Anyway, we put a graphic up there. I think there they are. Uh, again, uh, check them out. Hey, summer is here and we have a few events for you to mark your calendars. One is coming up in less than uh, a month. Ready? On Wednesday, July 6th, 6 p.m. I've been invited to speak at the Wheeler Farm by Pastor Terry Long of Calvary Chapel, Salt Lake City. I promise if you attend, you are going to be challenged because we are going to hit issues dead on the spot. Take a look.
That was an advertisement for me speaking at uh, the Wheeler Farm, July 6, 6 p.m. Come one, come all, uh, because we are going to talk about some very pressing, important issues to the body of Christ, particularly here in Salt Lake. Then jumping out of ways, mark your calendars for the 6th Annual Burning Heart Revival and Open Water Baptisms. When? Saturday, September 3rd, 2011 at the Murray Park Amphitheater. Is that right, Derek? That's correct. We'll give you the time later. Adams Road will be there as well as a few other bands. Some open water baptisms for those of you who are interested. Okay. We have people positioned all around now who are there to help others trans, uh, uh, transition out of Mormonism. And we have them in many states and even in other countries to contact one of our Aletheia representatives. Write us at or email us at sean at aletheamedia.com and we will put you in uh, contact with somebody in your area if there's one there. If you have an interest in being an Aletheia representative and helping people come out, please email us at the same place. Tell us and we'll tell you what you need to do. How about a moment from the word? Now, we've been working through the Bible, Matthew chapter 16, and we're going to continue to do that starting next week. That's where we've got up to this point. But in the course of what we do here on the show, and in light of what the LDS say about contention, um, this is getting contentious. I'm going to leave. Uh, we need some biblical clarification on what contention is, when it's acceptable, when it is not acceptable, and what types there are. Now, after Peter gave the gospel or shared the gospel to Cornelius, a Gentile, and all his house, he returned to Jerusalem. And there he met the apostles who wanted to talk to him about his actions. In Acts 11:2, it says, And when Peter was come up to Jerusalem, they that were of the circumcision contended with him. Okay? In other words, Jews who had converted to Christianity, including the apostles, challenged Peter with being at fault for sharing the gospel with Gentiles, non-Jews. The Greek word for contend here in that passage we just showed you is diakrino, all right? And it means to doubt, to question, to hesitate, to discern, to judge, to sta uh, stagger, to waver, and even to separate thoroughly or to even withdraw from, okay? This type of contending is applied to a group of believers. This is what believers do with each other. We diacrino with each other. If somebody comes up with some harebrained idea and we don't believe it's supported by the word, we diacrino, we contend with them in that way. Uh, diacrino is a word that is limited specifically to believers, it may be difficult to do. It should always be done peaceably uh, by the fruits of the Spirit and with love, always, okay? But what about when we are confronted with people who are not believers, not Christians, or who try and sway us to another position that is faulty or who try and demean the faith that we believe in? In another passage of Scripture in the book of Jude, Paul commands members of the body of Christ to earnestly contend for the faith. Again, the word contend in the English. Specifically, this is what the passage says. 
Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Now, the Greek word uh, used here for contend is an entirely different word from diakrino. And it is the only time we find this Greek word in the New Testament. It's uh, epagonizomai. Epagonizomai is, uh, refers to the Greek games. And on your screen, we have the definition. To greatly struggle, to fight for, to battle against, to push, strive, even agonize over, or to be in agony against an opponent to the faith once delivered to the saints. We epagonizomai heresies and falsehoods and lies and deceptions spoken against biblical Christianity or, possess, or positions spoken um, in support of deceptive claims. We epagamizomai that. It's like being in the boxing ring of the Olymp Olympics in a running race, in an Olympic game, and it's a fight, it's a battle, it's a struggle. Remember, the point in Jude is that we are to earnestly agonize for the faith once delivered to the saints. So the implication here is we are to epagonizomai with those who are yet to be believers. Imagine diocrining in an Olympic game, sitting back and just disgusting, doubting. That's, that, doesn't, that contending doesn't work in the Olympic games. Or imagine epagamizomine against a humble little old Christian lady who has just this idea and really wrestling with her about it. Those don't fit. Do you see the differences? Listen, with non-believers who seek to thwart or malign the truth of the Bible, we earnestly epagamize I uh, even battle agonizingly with them. With brothers and sisters, we diacrino. The LDS teach that if any epagamizomine is going on, uh, it's of the devil. And they teach their congregates that if some difficulty is brought up, to run because the devil is influencing them. This is exactly what their forces of deception want their people to think. So instead of being willing to agonize or wrestle for the tenets of their faith, they retreat into a bunker of self-delusion, crying contentions of the devil, contentions of the devil, and actually believe it is honorable or approved of God to bury their heads in the sand. What the LDS don't realize is we wrestle and we strive because we love God and because we seek truth and because we are willing to fight for people to understand that truth. It's not from lack of love that we fight. It's because we love. We can use your support if you're so led by the Lord to do it. If that happens, consider the following if you would.
We received a number of emails uh, from my comments last week on depression and the use of medication to combat it. Some supported our advice, like a Christian psychologist out of Colorado. Others told us that God will over overcome all things if people would just let him. Some people wrote about using natural substances over, uh, to overcome depression. And other comments were made to me directly that medicines are far too often abused, even among believers, and that the world needs more Jesus and less Prozac in the war against depression and other mental illnesses. I realize I'm not going to please everything with the things I say on the show. We all have insights. We all have opinions, uh, most of them containing some validity or another. So I guess the best way I can summarize my position on this topic is to say dogmatism in almost anything is a tool of the feeble, if not dangerous, minds. Uh, certainly, psychotropic medicines are abused today, and people who don't need to take them do even by believers. And certainly God can cure anyone of anything in his miraculous ways. However, he often delivers his miraculous ways using scientific minds of men and women. I mean, what if you had bad eyesight? Would you sit there in the dark waiting for God to heal you, or do you think he might be calling you to get a pair of glasses that he inspired somebody to come up with years and years and years ago? or even contact lenses, or even radio keratotomy. Uh, suppose a child falls into a pool and stops breathing. Do you stand by the poolside and wait on God to pull the child out? Or do you jump in, drag him out, and use CPR, which we have learned from the inspiration of men and women who have developed it to our benefit in this fallen world? The, situa the situations are endless. And there's no reason to believe that in a world that all Christians agree is fallen and in the hands of evil, primarily, that God has not inspired men and women to create medicines to help those who are imprisoned by illnesses, including mental illness. Before you judge and sit there and write emails in saying that it's wrong, come sit in my chair for a week. Um, meet people who love the Lord but have taken their own lives. Uh, you going to judge them? Sit around absolutely delusional individuals who run around in the mid of winter barefoot in the snow. Uh, counsel with people who read the Bible, who pray, who attend church, uh, who without a second thought would rape your daughter if they had the chance, if they didn't take their medicine. Uh, yes, we pray. Yes, we love. Yes, we trust in God and the King for all things, including the wisdom to take medication when it's needed. And with that, let's have a prayer. Heavenly Father, let us be a people of faith and let us turn our lives to you and put situations in your hand and trust you, Lord. Help us now as we try to deliver this message uh, to people out there. Open up eyes and ears and hearts and help us to communicate. Let, bless our staff, our volunteers, the technicians, the, the studio, the station, and people out there who are viewing here live and all over the place that uh, this will go the way you want and the things that aren't of you, Lord, will just die away and disappear. In Jesus' name, amen. Arguably, one of the greatest authors of 20th century fiction, Ayn Rand, though faulty in her philosophies, wrote directly from her early life experiences and impressions of growing up in St. Petersburg, Russia. 
in a recent and perhaps definitive biography on Rand uh, called Ayn Rand and the World She Made, author Ann Heller points out that many of the models for Rand's fictional characters in We the Living, Anthem, The Fountainhead, and Atlas Shrugged were taken from the books, events, ideas, and personal heroes of her early childhood life. I would suggest that Joseph Smith was not one bit different in his creation of the Book of Mormon and other fanciful works of fiction, which he had the audacity to say were the works of God. So far, we have provided three of the four elements that made up the ground upon which Joseph Smith stood as a child. The political environment of the New Republic in which he lived, popular anti-Catholic and anti-Masonic themes, and the popular Protestant culture, which flooded in and around the town in which Joseph grew up in and, uh, grew up in and lived. Tonight, we are going to describe the last major element that makes up the soil which lay beneath Joseph's young feet. Great public interest in the origins, artifacts, and ideas of the Native Americans. Prof professor of Native American history call the period between the 16th and the 19th century the contact era of Native American history. Why the contact era? It was the time when Native Americans had contact with explorers, pilgrims, and settlers from other lands. There were two major results of this contact era period. First, there was a reduction of the American Indian population by 90%. Um, this is nearly unfathomable because some modern scholars claim that the Native American population prior to the contact era was somewhere between 72 and 100 million Indians. The second result of this contact era on Native Americans was the loss of their land base. Native American Indians through this contact era lost 97% of the land they once inhabited. Both the loss of population and the land base was the result of Native Americans coming in contact with disease, warfare, slavery, kidnapping, the disruption of their traditional Indian economic system, forced relocations, and several major drives on our forefathers' parts to civilize the Indians by making them farmers. According to Daniel Borstein, one of the earliest and most consistent questions raised in the minds of Europeans who came here was, what are the origins of these Indian people? So misnamed by Columbus upon discovering their existence. On the topic of origins, there are three main opinions. The first opinion is that from the Native Americans themselves. And generally what they say is, hey, We've always been there. We've always been here. That's what their culture predominantly says and said way back. Second, the other theory is that they originated from Asia and came to the continent by uh, land migrations typified by the Bering Strait and the land bridge hypothesis. We've all heard of that. And the third is that they arrived by seaborne migrations. This third opinion that the, Native, that the Native Americans came here by boat is what we're going to discuss tonight. Now remember, early contact era Europeans were primarily Christians 
who naturally believed, because of the Bible, that all human beings descended from Adam and Eve in, and started out in a garden somewhere on the Eastern Hemisphere. When the people like the Native Americans were discovered uh, living in a place, a country outside of that hemisphere here in the Americas, many of these Christian folks suggested that these Native people got here the same way they did, by boat. In his book, Indian Origins and the Book of Mormon, author Dan Vogel provides a list of many thinkers and writers who wrote about Native American origins decades, even centuries before Joseph Smith was even born. Now, growing up LDS, I was led to believe that the Book of Mormon story was highly original and that it was revolutionary and it provided answers to where the Indians came from, which were never ever really understood before by people. And that this book was just revolutionary when it came out in 1830. Well, UTLM, Utah Lighthouse Ministry.org, summarizes the book, the books that existed before Joseph Smith was even born on the subject and that existed while he was supposedly translating the Book of Mormon. Now remember, the year the Book of Mormon came out was 1830. Remember that date, all right. And while I'm not suggesting that Joseph Smith read all of these books uh, that we're gonna share with you, I am suggesting there was plenty of discussion floating around uh, his head and his family and his, his community as he grew up from a boy to supposedly then discovering these gold plates. Okay, in 1682, 178 years before Joseph Smith's Book of Mormon, author Thomas Thorogood wrote a book called Jews in America, or Probabilities that the Americans are of that race. Here, Thorogood suggests that the gospel was anciently preached in America. He also emphasized a millennialistic nature of the Indian Israelite people and the importance of the Indians being converted to Christianity. This was 178 years before Joseph Smith, before the Book of Mormon. In that same year, Manasseh ben Israel wrote a book called The Hope of Israel, and in it he includes a story of the remnant of the ten tribes of Israel being discovered in Peru. Samuel Sewall in 1697 wrote Phenomena Quantum Apocalyptica out of Boston, and he said, quote, that the Indians are Israelites, that America might be the place of the New Jerusalem, and that other sheep that are mentioned in John 10:16 are the American Indians. Cotton Mather produced a book called India Christiana in Boston in 1721. Therein he suggests that those in the old world sailed to America. In 1758, Edmund Burke wrote an account of the European settlements in America. There he mentions temples in Mexico and Peru. In 1773, Samuel Mather penned a book titled An Attempt to Show That America Must, be no must Have Been Known to the Ancients. Here he stated that he believed that America was populated by two major migrations, one from the Tower of Babel time and the other centuries later from Asia and possibly Phoenicia. He also describes a theory that ancient America was visited by Christ's apostles or perhaps by some of his 70. In 1775, James Adair wrote The History of the American Indians. Here he claimed that the Indians spoke a corrupt form of Hebrew, that they honored the Jewish Sabbath, performed circumcision, and offered animal sacrifice. Adair's evidence of the Indian-Israelite theory consists of 23 parallels between the uh, Indians and the Jews. 
Do you suppose that Joseph Smith's grandfather, Asael, or that his parents, who were both who both taught school and were school teachers at that uh, sometime in their lives, do you suppose there on the American frontier they bantered about the origin of these Indian tribes that they would see pass through the community? They certainly did. In his notes on the state of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson back in 1787 speculated that seaborne migrations either from Europe or Asia were probable, uh, was the probable origin of the American Indians. In 1793, George Imlay wrote a topographical description of the Western territory of North America and suggested, among other things, the practice of mound builders supposedly burying their dead in stone boxes. Uh, William Moulton, published out of uh, Utica, New York, wrote in 1804, two years before Joseph Smith's birth, a, consign, a concise extract from the Sea Journal of William Morton, and he describes his visits to ruined Peruvian cities with large palaces and elegant buildings. Elijah Parrish, out of Newport, Massachusetts, penned a new system of modern geography in 1810. In it, he produced a geography that was used in New England schools, which makes a comparison between the Indian, American Indians and the Israelite customs. In Carlisle, Pennsylvania, where I served my mission, Archibald Loudon wrote a book in 1811 called A Selection of Some of the Most Interesting Narratives. In it, he suggests the Lost Ten Tribe theories, and he also says there are Indian tombstones covered in Hebrew characters. He also compared Peruvian temples to Jewish synagogues. In 1813, Alexander Humboldt wrote three different books on American Indians. One four-volume set was titled Political Essays on the Kingdom of New Spain. And there he describes Mexican fortifications and temples and their use of metals. Elias Bodenot wrote A Star in the West, and he says that there was a lost book of God by these people. This was 1816. Joseph Smith would have been... 10 years uh, old at this time, a perfect age for a boy of imagination to develop tremendous interest in the origins of the Indians. When Joseph was 11, James McCullough wrote Researches on America. He wrote that, there were that the mound builders around were a white group that were more advanced than the darker natives. When Joseph was 16 years old, the year before he said he knew of some buried gold plates, Antonia del Rio wrote description of the ruins of an ancient city. He suggests that the ancient Americas came by sea. He also mentions the tradition of an eclipse in 34 AD and speculates that the Mexican god Quetzalcoatl was actually St. Thomas preaching the gospel here in ancient America. The real clincher, however, was published in 1823 by Ethan Smith, Pastor Ethan Smith a book called View of the Hebrews, or The Tribes of Israel in America. Ethan Smith was a pastor over a congregation in Pulteney, Vermont, where Oliver Cowdery's parents attended church. Oliver Cowdery later helped Joseph Smith translate his Book of Mormon. Ethan Smith suggests that the first settlers in the New World were a lost ten tribes of Israel. He also talked about a lost book of God that one day would be found and used. In the future, we will talk at length about comparisons between Ethan Smith's hypothetical book and Joseph's plagiarism of it in the Book of Mormon. Also in 1823, John Hayward wrote The Natural and Aboriginal History of the Tennessee, and he says that the mound builders were a white people who were destroyed by the Indians. Also, uh, John Yates and Joseph Mutton wrote A History of the State of New York in 1824, six years before the Book of Mormon was published.
Talks about a separate race of white-skinned people who were destroyed by the Indians. They mention discovering hieroglyphic writing and mammoth bones and include that Indians in certain locales possess the signs and tokens of Freemasonry. Josiah Priest in 1826 penned the wonders of nature and providence displayed in Albany, New York. All of it now happening around New York where Joseph Smith uh, grew up. This was a compilation of many previous works, uh, and including much from the view of the Hebrews. And then in 1827, David Cusack wrote a book. One fable speaks in this book of descendants of two brothers continually at war with the other until one group is finally destroyed in North America. This was in 1827, Sketches of the American History of Six Nations in Lewiston, New York. This book was published. This was before three, four years before the Book of Mormon came out. And in that, they tell the story of two brothers came to a great nation and went and fought against each other where one group is finally destroyed in North America. In the same year, there was a book where the uh, Indian language is a form of Hebrew. And then there's another one where the lost book of God, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine, Archibald Kennedy, not to mention Jefferson, were all extremely ish, uh, interested in issues relating to the Native Americans and their origins. Americans were highly interested in their origins, and they still are, but never as interested as the decades preceding and the decades following Joseph Smith's birth. What's most important is all of these speculations by these early Americans in, here in the Republic have proved to be completely unfounded, total speculations, and have never been validated by any scientist like those who work for the Smithsonian Institution. We're going to get to specifics in programs to come about the contents of the Book of Mormon. We have now laid the groundwork in which Joseph Smith stood and said, I am going to concoct this story. Next week, we're going to introduce the seed of the Book of Mormonian, where it, come from, where it came from and how it was planted, fertilized, watered, cultivated, and then shared to the rest of the world. We're going to open up the phone lines, 801-973-TV20, 801-973-8820. While we wait, how about some emails and letters? We have uh, Kenton Layton. He is uh, there. If operators uh, will take your calls and clear you, 801-973-8820, 801-973-TV20. Uh, somebody watched our show for the first time in um, St. George and said, we have never seen such a dead stick comedy like that before. That had such a big laugh on that fellow. Over 14 million members of the church worldwide, and he may get 70 people out to his church on Sunday. Ha! Huh. Like my father used to say, better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than open your mouth and remove all doubt. He took away all my doubt. Uh, on the back of this letter, uh, his friend wrote, Sean, I told Mr. Blank to watch your show. Now he is an ex-friend. He really believed all the stuff about Joseph Smith and the show really got to him. I don't think he will ever be a so-called friend again. That's the price you pay for being honest. How, hell has no fury like a saint scorned. Thanks so much and good health, etc., etc., from Mike Brown. Uh, Stephen L. wrote, and he said, uh, the rich man didn't ask Abraham if he could go to his brothers. He asked him if he would send Lazarus. I guess I made a mistake when I was rambling, and uh, that's what it uh, So that's a correction for you. 
from Carl. He wrote, what is the difference between a true believing Mormon and a born again Christian? I wrote him back. There's two kinds of people on the earth, Carl, those who are covered by Christ's blood and those who aren't. Who they are, where they are, we have no idea. All we can do is preach Jesus to as many people as possible and hope they hear. He is the only truth which most LDS get wrong. He wrote back, how do you know what he, how do you know that he is only the truth? How can I know that he is only the truth? So he asked how he can know and he asked how I know. We wrote back, you can know in the sense of absolutely knowing, Carl, by giving it all up to God directly. All your pride, all of your life, all your pain, all your anger, disappointment, bitterness, all the good in your life, all the bad. Handing it to him and asking him for a new heart, a new life, for forgiveness wrought by the uh, blood of his son. You can know when you are willing to receive whatever he has to offer you, really willing to receive it. Only when you're really willing to receive it. And you go to him directly, not through religion, not through Sean, not through prophets, but to the only between the two of you. And you ask Jesus into your life and you tell God that you will wait for him to give you this new light in faith. And then you actually wait, Carl. You wait on him to give you a new heart, uh, to come and give you new eyes and to give you a new uh, uh, ears to hear. And when he acts, you will know and you will join people from all walks of life, all religions, all backgrounds and uh, who have transcended through dogma, uh, doctrine, and man. Uh, got another email from Carl, and that was not enough. And we deal with this quite often, and people saying, how can I know, how can I know? And really, they don't want to know. If you're a seeker, you will find him. Jesus himself said, knock and you shall receive, ask. And, and so if you really want to know, God is going to give it to you. But if you use all kinds of reasonings why you can't or why you won't or why it's not going to work, well, forget it. But if you're really seeking, do it. All right, let's try Kent in uh, Leighton, uh, line two. Kent, you're on Heart of the Matter. Yes, Sean, this is Kent from Leighton. Hello, Kent. Yeah, I would like to uh, ask a question. I was attending last Sunday the, uh, you know, that, you know, the church, and I'm interested in why did they, they supposed to teach from the New Testament, you know, from Matthew. And they claim that they, uh, that in Matthew chapter 24 is, is, you know, false. And they went to teach from the, from the other book, you know, Pearl Great Price. And yeah. I would like to find out why, why do they, why do they do that? Uh, Joseph Smith went through the Bible and he, uh, he would read a verse. He would, started in Genesis and he would read and then he would get ideas about what needed to be changed. He never looked at language. He didn't know the languages. He didn't study them. He had no help. And he would just interpret and reinterpret uh, passages. And he went all the way through the Old and the New Testament. They call it the inspired version. And when it comes to Matthew, he did most of his uh, additions and changes in addition to the book of Genesis. And so why they did that was they were saying that Matthew has problems. Let's read what Joseph Smith said Matthew should really say. And that's what you experienced. And I think he either fell over dead at my response or he hung up. 
So Kent, that's the answer. I want you to know, you get a hold of one of the uh, inspired version Bibles. You notice the LDS don't use it too often. At the bottom of their King James Version, they'll put JST and some notes to a few verses and stuff, but the full text they don't use because it's laughable. It is laughable that this guy, I mean, read John 1.1. That's all you got to do. And, and open up to other books and you'll see that he added like chapters in there of his own thoughts and his own thinking that have absolutely nothing to do with the Bible. So that's what you experienced. Uh, how can you dispute the, dispute the three witnesses in the early part of Mormonism in the Book of Mormon? We are not only going to dispute it, we're going to show you why they truly weren't witnesses. The three all saw the plates by a vision in their head. They saw it by the eye of God. They, the three witnesses did not uh, see the plates with their own eyes. They saw them through the eye of God. And that's in their testimony in the Book of Mormon. But we're going to get to that. We're going to get to all the witnesses. And we're going to show you all along the holes through the whole thing. So that's how I would dispute it. All right. If an LDS person drinks and the bishop finds out what happens to him, first rule is it depends on the bishop. Okay? There are some bishops who are very good men. They are kind. They're patient. And they would say, you know, they would call the person in probably and say, hey, you know, uh, Brother Jones, I saw that you were at the bar the other day. And, uh, you know, tell me about it. Are you having a problem? And they'll work with them like a really good uh, uh, leader should, a good religious leader would. Other bishops could call them in and say, give me your temple recommend. You are need to repent. You are letting the Lord down. You are not. It just depends. And that's one of the slippery difficulties with dealing with Mormonism because everybody has a kind of subjective experience with the whole gig. Some people grow up in wards that are wonderful and filled with all kinds of love. Other people grow up in places where it's horrible. And, and you know, and I guess that happens in every type of organized religion. So, but the real deal is if you don't live the word of wisdom, you can't get into the temple. And if the bishop is going by the book, if the Holy Spirit so tells him, you know, he's going to say you need to repent. And was this just a one-time thing? You know, stuff like that. So that's kind of the answer. Why did the LDS lie and deny the authenticity of the Native Americans in the U.S.? Well, they have to because for years, starting way back, and we're going to show books showing you pictorials and what do they call those things when the pictures are like a, a round about thing? We're going to show you all kinds of stuff they used to teach. The American Indians, were, this is their story, the Book of Mormon. And DNA and research like we talked about tonight and so is proving it's wholly faulty. And so they have to deny the, the facts and support this myth that Joseph Smith put on them like the other books that were written that were all hypothesis. So that's why. Have you ever heard of the Chazar Empire? Uh, no, I have not heard of it. All right, Amanda wrote, why do you attack the LDS church? This hardly seems like Christian behavior. If your ministry was serious about bringing people to Christ from your viewpoints, they wouldn't be trying to do so by using derogatory attacks, trying to dig up anything LDS and portray it as negative. It appears that your organization is serious about attacking the LDS church and its members. I'm curious to know if you have a different point of view than I have. I doubt it matters, but I believe in freedom of religion and you can witness all you want, but I ask that you stop attacking others practicing their free religion. No one is requir required to join the church anyway, Amanda says. Well, let me say a couple things, and we kind of rehearse this about every month or two. Uh, first of all, Joseph Smith claimed 
all Christian churches were an abomination. Their creeds were all false. Okay, so he drew first blood in the war on, uh, on between religions. All right, rarely are you going to have a Baptist stand up and say all Methodist views are wrong. Rarely are you going to have somebody else in the Christian body of all these different denominations say everything they do is wrong. Well, Joseph stood up and said, everybody is wrong. So that's first blood. Second thing is the missionaries go out, knock on doors, hold up, and they teach a little lesson about apostasy. And they say that the power to act in God's name was lost from the earth and that Joseph Smith had to restore it and that all the pastors and preachers, when they do baptisms and marriages and all these other things, they just do it by the laws of the land and they have no power of God to act in his name. They will say only the LDS have the power to do it through our priesthood, which is a complete farce. Read Grant Palmer's Insider's View of Mormon Origins to discover what a farce that priesthood thing is. Uh, and he's LDS. Uh, and a researcher, a reliable one. So uh, you, you say, listen, uh, stop attacking. Another thing is when I went to the LDS temple, Amanda, uh, it had a Protestant preacher come up and he was hired by the devil in the temple movie to do the work of the devil in getting people to come to his congregation. You know, so who really does the attacking? You have a, a force of 60,000 missionaries knocking on doors right now throughout the world somewhere, and they are sharing these messages that started with Joseph Smith's false first vision. Uh, the second part we, we talked about earlier in the show. This is Epagamizamine, and we are going after truth. You should be able to handle truth, Amanda. Show me where I'm wrong. You say attacking. Tell me what I am saying that is not right, okay? And we'll go from there. Uh, all the operators are still working on calls. Um, let's go through. This is interesting. How blind can a person be? Uh, how defensive can they be in trying to protect their little uh, unresearched beliefs? This is from Karen. Uh, signs her name LaFay. And Karen, she um, had been writing to me and telling me, I need to repent. I need to repent. I wrote her back. I need to repent of what? You need to repent of besmirching Joseph Smith the prophet. And I told her uh, she needs to do some research. And, and I sent her to a place where she could read this quote. And the quote is from Joseph Smith. Um, Come on. You're probably familiar with this. Come on, you persecutors. You false swears. All hell boil over. You burning mountains, roll down your lava, for I will come out on top at last. I have more to boast of than ever any man had. I am the only man that has ever been able to keep a whole church together since the days of Adam. A majority of the whole have stood by me. Neither Paul, John, Peter, nor Jesus ever did it. I boast that no man ever did a work such as I. The followers of Jesus ran away from him. But the Latter-day Saints never ran away from me yet. When they can get rid of me, the devil will go also. That's from History of the Church, Volume 6, page 408 and 409. Her response to this quote, When Joseph said that he's done more than any man alive, save Jesus only, I, I don't think he was meaning this, these things in an arrogant way. <laughs> Not, no arrogance in that at all. Any way you read this, any way you read it. Now, I read it, I read it theatrically, right? I read it, Sean McCraney reading it, right? Well, let's just try to read a line from it there. Um, I am the only man 
whoever kept the whole church together since the days of Adam. A large majority of the whole have stood by me. Neither Paul or John or Peter nor Jesus ever did it. Uh, I boast that no man has ever done a work such as I. Either way, the guy was a, a unbelievably arrogant. You guys are following this. I mean, you've got to be kidding. I mean, what does Jesus say in Scripture? Be humble, be broken, the weak things of the world, the base things of the world, and you have a guy, and this attitude permeates down here with the suits and the, and the looks and the pride and the arrogance. It still comes on from Joseph all the way to you. So anyway, uh, we're going to go to Stephanie in Midville, Midvale Line 3. Stephanie, you're on Heart of the Matter. Hey. Hey. Um, my husband and I have lived in Utah for about six years and didn't know anything about the Mormon culture, and your show has just been really inspirational to us to be able to witness oh, good. to a lot of Mormons. But I had a question. I was curious, um, what happens when you're sealed to your family for eternity? You're sealed to, like, your mom and your dad and your family, but then you get married and you have a family and you get sealed to them. So what, how does that work? Are you like hopping between worlds to see these different people in heaven? I just don't understand that. Well, the first thing is the LDS would say, we can't understand the things of God, so we don't really know how it will actually play out. Uh, but the sealing of, let's say, that my parents were married in the temple, I'm sealed to them. So let's say I was still LDS and faithful and everything, and then my wife and I are sealed. My parents would be over uh, uh, several universes or whatever, universe or solar system or, or, or earths, and then I would too, and we would get together for God reunions, I guess, you know. Uh, okay. But the, the key to hey, this. Because that's just one of those questions that, you know, you're witnessing to someone and they try to talk to you about family forever, and then you ask them, and nobody has been able to give me even that clear of an answer on it. Yeah, because they really but, they don't know. They, they have no idea. Well, it, that makes sense. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for watching, Stephanie. Thank you so much. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye. Let me make a comment about uh, a marriage in heaven, too. Now, Jesus said we're not married nor given in marriage in heaven. And contextually, when you analyze it and, and everything, it is point blank. It's not about getting married when we're in heaven. It's about marriage here does not continue on in heaven. Now, a lot of people say, well, that just doesn't seem right. Well, you know what? God might have a better plan. He might have something where you and your spouse are one in, in a spirit form of some shape, where marriage is a joke. It's an earthly institution compared to what God is going to do for couples who want to be together in the eternity. We don't know. Just because Jesus said when it comes to marriage, it's not going to, doesn't mean families won't be together. I mean, certainly if a family's all Christian, you're going to be together, you know? But so D Joseph Smith, all he did was bring in a myth to try to get people excited about buying into the program instead of teaching people trust God. We live by faith. He is going to do for us immeasurably beyond what our imaginations can imagine. The, the LDS are settling for this low, creepy kind of carnival marriage certificate deal ceiling when God is going to do things that are unbelievable for those that believe. You know, so if you are fearful of losing your spouse uh, uh, and your LDS and, and, and becoming Christian, forget it. 
God is going to bless you a thousand million times more. Okay? So I wanted to point that out. Off air, it says, what is your take on Ether 6, 5 through 11? I don't, I didn't memorize that one. But when we start going through the Book of Mormon, we'll take it out and talk about it. From Yako, or excuse me, Yaku, sorry I uh, mispronounced that. He says, if Paul was able to receive a vision on the road to Damascus, and we follow his teachings from God, why won't God do the same thing for Joseph Smith? It's a, it's a, it's a reasonable question. I mean, Paul was not one of the original 12. Jesus had died and ascended. Paul on a road to Damascus, he has a vision. He has witnesses to the vision. And then he goes on and becomes the apostle. Then why wouldn't God give Joseph Smith a vision and not us not follow that too? That's his, his logic. Well, first, Paul was a firsthand witness of Jesus Christ. You have to understand that. Jesus Christ appeared to him. Jesus Christ taught Paul in the Arabian desert for three years after he had that vision. And that's where he learned to teach the gospel in the way he did. Paul became the 12th apostle. Some Christians are going to disagree with me on that. Matthias was the one who the apostles, prior to the Holy Spirit falling, they cast lots the Old Testament way and they said, hey, let's just get Matthias to come in here. And God had another idea of who the 12th apostle should be. And that was Paul. In heaven, Revelation says that the foundation of heaven is going to sit on 12 pillars, not 13. I believe Paul was that 12th pillar that God called and put in place to carry on his church of first-hand witnesses. That's the first thing. The second thing is the apostles who were living and saw Jesus Christ, they received Paul as an apostle and they called his letters scripture. Okay, so we have an apostolic verification of Paul being a first-hand witness and his writings being scripture. Peter does that, read first and second Peter. Third, everything Paul said is in harmony with all the rest of the Bible, old and new. Joseph Smith, the things he said are not in harmony with the Bible. So if people can say they've had visions, I'm sure visions are still viable. But if they're not in harmony with the, the Bible, there is no need. And remember, the apostolic church, they were first-hand witnesses of the resurrected Lord so that they could preach him. Joseph Smith was not. Fourth, Paul was visited by Jesus. He, he could be visited by Jesus because Jesus was incarnate. Resurrected, yes, but visited by the Lord Jesus Christ. He did not see the Father whom we can't see and who is a spirit. And the scripture says no man can see the Father. So Joseph Smith in his vision said the Father visited him. Okay, that's not possible according to the Bible. It's impossible. And so we know that everything Paul said about his vision is consistent with scripture, but everything Joseph Smith said about his was not. Okay, uh, Herman from Provo says, I need the Book of Mormon. I read the Book of Mormon and scroll, scroll, and prayed about it. About a month later, I woke up at 3 a.m. and now I know it isn't true. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs> Michael uh, Mento brings out something very interesting. He says, according to the Catholic Church, if a person uh, seeking to join the Catholic faith, faith was previously baptized with another Christian faith, they do not need to get rebaptized as a Catholic. However, if that Christian faith was the Mormon religion, the Catholic Church does not recognize that baptism and they must 
have the baptism as a Christian. Uh, seriously, this tells me that even the Catholic Church knows that the God of the Mormon faith is not the same as the general Christian community. I want to tell you something. As we approach 2012, November of 2012, you are going to hear a lot about whether Mormonism is Christian. And you're going to see, I would guess, billions of dollars pumped into our nation trying to convince the world that Mormonism is Christian. He adds a personal note. He says, I'm looking forward to uh, a certain presidential candidate uh, getting the Republican nod. Then as the Christian right-wing conservatives start to jump on the Mormons are Christian to bandwagon, someone somewhere is going to have to expose the true difference. And I pray to God that when that happens, more people will come to the biblical truth of Christ. So that's very possible. God will use this in a, in a remarkable way. So uh, really good points from Michael Mento. Lady says, Mormons are Christian. <laughs> and she uses perhaps one of the best arguments a Latter-day Saint can use. Why else would they have Christ's name? <laughs> would we have Christ's name in our church name? She didn't want to talk to you. She says you look weird. Um, having Christ's name in something, all, you know what that is, Mormon lady? Alexander Campbell, when Joseph Smith was formulating his idea of the church, was kind of a leader of the Restorationist movement. And it was very popular in, in uh, early America at the time, well, 1820s, Joseph Smith's time. And part of the Restorationist movement was we need to get all the things that Jesus established in his church back into the Christian church. And they had a whole bunch of things that were not even biblical. And one of those was an extrapolation of some, biblical, of some scriptures that said the church has to be in the name of Jesus Christ. Joseph Smith added that into the Book of Mormon. And the first church of the LDS church was called the Church of Christ. Uh, not even Jesus Christ, the Church of Christ. That means Church of the Messiah. His name was Yeshua, but it's the Church of the Messiah. Only later was it called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Now, when I was growing up, Miss, it's in your name. Uh, it, uh, it was the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And then I forget how long ago, maybe 15 years ago, maybe 20, I don't know. Suddenly it became the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It is so failing in its Christianity that they think that their logo makes them Christian. It's unbelievable what that is. So um, that's one thing as to why it's not Christian. The rest of it, we've spent 260 shows, my dear. Go to hotm.tv. You can watch hour-long programs that will show you how they are not Christian. We could go through them right now. Uh, we could talk about how they say Jesus was a created being. Bible says he's the Alpha and the Omega. Uh, Bible says he was not created by anybody. He's uncreated. M Mormons say he was a created being. Mormons say he is our spiritual brother. He's a spiritual brother to Lucifer. The Bible says, no, 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 no. Lucifer is a fallen angel. Jesus created all things, including the angels, including Lucifer. Mormons say that uh, Jesus was born not of a virgin. She was a virgin when she met the father, but then she quickly became not a virgin and conceived Jesus. The uh, Gospel of Luke says Jesus uh, was conceived by Mary being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. Brigham Young said that's a lie. The Bible says he, she was overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. 
Brigham Young says that's a lie. The Mormon church says that Jesus Christ suffered in the Garden of Gethsemane. But all the references to suffering and to our being Christian is focused on the cross in the Bible. No reference for us picking up our garden. All kinds of references for taking up our cross. The LDS church says that Jesus Christ's uh, atonement, what it did was it wipes away your sin only if you're worthy enough to have it wiped away. Uh, Christianity teaches that no one's worthy enough to have their sins wiped away. And so God sent his son to shed his own blood and then that son did it and we have our faith on him and that is what justifies us before the father. The Mormon church says there's no imputation of his righteousness. The Mormon church says that, that you are not righteous because of Christ's life. The Bible says he imputes his righteousness into us as believers. So we're not only cleansed of our sins, we are made righteous by our faith on him. Do you want me to go on and on? Okay. We're going to line two. Greg, they're saying is a good one. Greg, you're on Heart of the Matter. We've only got a minute. Hey, is this Tom? Yep. Listen, I want to see the church for back saving. Okay, wait, Greg, you're going to have to either take your phone a little bit away. Say it one more time slowly. Okay, is this better? Yeah. I want to sue the church for back tithing. I was born and raised LDS, and I think they should pay all of the members back. That, that was a classic one. They don't tithing to the finally realized. I don't think you should get your tithing back, Greg. I think you're going to use it for more hooch. <laughs> That's not going to be good for you. Don't sue him. Just turn to the Lord and, and he'll help you out, my brother. We got to go. We're out of time. Listen, sorry about Mike and Sandy. I'd love to have taken your call. Call back next week, Matt. It says Catholics won't accept the eldest baptism because it isn't through the Trinity. Well, I don't care why they don't accept it. It's not Christian. See you next week. Yeah.